These past few weeks, we've been talking about the thought or the idea of the misunderstood church. Thinking about how easy it is for people to have misunderstandings with one another. Specifically, we've been talking about how people misunderstand the church of Christ. Now let me remind you of something that I said in the very beginning of this study three weeks ago. I do not presume to speak for every member of every church of Christ. I do not speak for every congregation that calls itself a church of Christ. I speak for myself. And the Center Church of Christ that meets in the building located at 110 Hurst Street in Center, Texas. But when I think of being misunderstood... I often think of an incident involving former President Richard Nixon. It proves something we all know, something we've all experienced in our everyday lives, that people hear you, but at the same time, they don't hear you. President Nixon was at an airport working the rope line, as they call it, shaking hands one day. Smokey Bear, we all refer to him as Smokey the Bear, was actually rescued in the 1950s as a young bear cub from a forest fire in New Mexico. And he became the national symbol of the U.S. Forest Service. The real Smokey Bear was actually kept in the National Zoo. Well, Smokey Bear, by the 1970s, is getting to be old in bear years. And he's ill. And his illness had been publicized. So as President Nixon is working the rope line and shaking hands, this little girl says, Mr. President, how is Smokey doing? Well, President Nixon gets this very baffled, puzzled look on his face. And an aide whispers in his ear, Smokey Bear, the National Zoo. And at that, President Nixon's face brightened and he stuck out his hand, he grinned and said, How do you do, Miss Bear? By the way, Smokey died in 1976. I thought you might want to know that too. In our previous lessons, we've talked about restoring God's way of doing things. Because you see, sometimes men and women lose sight of God's original plans. We saw in the book of Nehemiah, when they observed the Feast of Tabernacles, they discovered that for a thousand years they had not been following God's plan. So they restored the way that God wanted it done. We saw last Lord's Day in 2 Samuel chapter 6, an example of David making preparations to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. That was when Uzzah was struck dead because he reached forth his hand to touch the ark. Well, when that happened, David did some research. And David, in his research, found out that God had prescribed a specific way the ark was to be moved and transported. And when they restored God's way of doing it, the move went quite smoothly. 
though we're often misunderstood. That's simply what we're trying to do. Trying to restore things to the way they were in the first century. Back in those days when the New Testament was being written. In those days when you could have actually gone and been able to hear Paul preach at Ephesus or Corinth and not have to listen to me. And last Sunday we talked about patterns that exist in the New Testament. Patterns for doing things the way the Lord wants those things to be done. Patterns for molding the church and our worship into what God wants it to be. What I want us to do this morning is to continue to talk about patterns as they exist in the New Testament. Because you see, we believe that the New Testament contains a pattern for salvation. And it contains a pattern for church membership. Now, for a little bit of background on this, let's travel to the city of Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. It's 50 days after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Dr. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 that there were in Jerusalem devout men. Dr. Luke tells us there were Jews from every nation. And it was on that day that the apostles began to speak in other tongues to that audience. And as we've been studying in our Sunday morning Bible class, as we study when the church was young, it was totally different from what men today call speaking in tongues. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. Remember that on Pentecost, if you read Acts chapter 2, there were all those different nations that were present that day. And with all those different nations present, it tells us each man understood in their own language what was being said. Now when that happens, when they started speaking in tongues, some of the people in the audience said, well, these men are drunk on new wine. But they weren't. Peter stood up. And he said, y'all, you all hearken unto my voice. And Peter explained they were not drunk on wine like some of the mockers and scoffers wanted to say. He told them that what was going on was the fulfillment of a prophecy contained in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Peter was doing that day exactly what Jesus had given him the authority to do in Acts chapter 16. When Peter made the confession and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of death will not prevail against it. And I'm going to give unto thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. That's in, as I said, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus told Peter he'd give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gave Peter the authority to preach the first sermon. And that's what Peter was doing 
on Pentecost. Well, as Peter brought that sermon that day to a close, he told them something that was quite startling. He said unto them, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made that same Jesus you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37 of Acts 2 says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? When Peter told them they had crucified the Son of God, it cut them to the heart. What do we do, they said. And here's what Peter told them beginning in verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on. For the promises to you and to your children and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then in verse 41 we read, Then they that gladly received His Word were baptized. And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Then we read that they continued daily in the Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And Dr. Luke concludes in verse 47, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now that reading there in Acts 2, when those 3,000 people were added to the 120 disciples, it brings us some questions for consideration. What conditions did those 3,000 converts on Pentecost have to meet? In the days that followed Pentecost, what conditions did those people have to meet before God saved them and added them to the church, as Dr. Luke tells us in verse 47? What do we have to do before God saves us and adds us to the church as those people were on that first day of Pentecost? The answer to this reveals the most important difference you'll find between churches of Christ and other evangelical groups. It's not the only important difference, but as I said, it's the most important difference. The answer begins, what conditions have to be met? The answer begins with a confessed belief. Before the Lord will save us, And add us to His church. We believe the Bible teaches we must be totally convinced of some fundamental truths. We must believe that our sins, our transgressions, our rebellion against God has placed us under the wrath of the God of heaven. And we must realize that our destiny as sinners 
is eternal separation from God. And then there must also be a realization on our part that in spite of our sin, God loves us. Remember, God is our Father. You know, Norm and I have two boys. And over the years, regardless of what their mother might tell you, those boys have not been perfect boys. Over the years, those boys have incurred the wrath of their father. Now, not as severely as Matt would tell you. Matt would tell you that they have incurred their father's wrath to the point of extension cords, chains, ropes, whatever was handy. I never used a chain on any of them. I never used a rope or extension cord either. But I did have a one by six board with a handle on it. But you know what? Even when those boys incurred the wrath of their father, I still loved those boys. And God, even in our rebellion, even in our transgression, even in our sin, God still loves us. And God loves us so much God does not want us to spend eternity in hell. He wants us to be with Him in heaven. But we have to come to the realization that God, and God alone, can change our lost condition. And we, with our own power, are completely powerless to save ourselves. And it's also imperative that we understand God can save us because God punished Jesus in our place. God put all of my sin and all of your sin on Jesus. And He poured it all on Him. He poured on Jesus all the holy wrath that my sin deserves by nailing Jesus to a cross. An event we commemorated a few moments ago with that Lord's Supper. After Jesus died on that cross as a substitute for us, His body was taken down and buried. But three days later, by the power of God, Jesus came back to life. But, there must be more than just a mental assent to these things being true. We must be willing to confess verbally our conviction that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, quite honestly, this part of our salvation answer does not distinguish us from other evangelicals. Not in any shape, form, or fashion. So there must be more to our answer involving the conditions of our salvation 
than a verbally confessed conviction about the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, to be sure, if we want God to save our souls, and if we want God to do for us what He did for those in Acts chapter 2, there's more to be done. We firmly believe the Bible teaches us we must stop living in sin. Our stubborn will must be surrendered to the will of God. And you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that repentance. Now, you ask what repentance is, and some people say, well, repentance means a changing of heart or a changing of mind about sin or a changing of direction. And as I've said a thousand times from this pulpit, this will make a thousand and one. I love the answer little Johnny gave the teacher in Sunday school. They're sitting in Sunday school and the teacher says, Class, can anyone tell me what repentance means? Little Johnny raised his hand. She said, Johnny, what does repentance mean? He said, that means being sorry enough to quit. That's repentance. It's more than being sorry for your sins. It's being sorry enough to quit. But guess what? Confessing our faith in Christ, repenting of sins, that also does not really distinguish us from most evangelicals. So there's got to be more to the answer, doesn't there? You see, in addition to a confessed belief and repentance, we also believe that God has mandated baptism as a condition for receiving salvation and becoming a part of God's family. With a heart full of faith, in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. And a firm commitment to live life God's way. We believe that God forgives our sins. God gives us the Holy Spirit. And God adds us to the church, His family. The moment we're baptized into the death of Christ. Because then we're raised in the likeness of His Resurrection. Paul would write in Romans 6, 3 and 4, We are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the full and final answer of salvation begins with a confessed belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It continues with repentance and is completed in baptism. And beloved, this is where the road forks. We passionately embrace baptism as a necessary conviction for salvation and as a necessary condition for church membership. I remember years ago when we were on the radio and there was a preacher from another religious group that followed me on the radio. And I had preached a series of lessons for about three Sundays on baptism and its necessity for salvation. And the guy that followed me on the radio after that third lesson, he felt compelled to 
start off his radio program. He said, my friends, I come to you this morning. And unlike the person who precedes me on this program, I do not believe in water bug salvation. I didn't hit him. Aren't you proud of me? You see, this is where the road forks. This is one of the critical teachings of the New Testament. Go back with me again to Acts 2 and verse 38. What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Do you see how Peter joins repentance and baptism in that passage? And then what does it say in verse 41? Those that gladly received His Word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus also joins the two in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Just like Peter joins them in Acts 2, and verse 38, Jesus joins them in Mark 16, 15 and 16. If God, in His Holy Word, has joined baptism and salvation together, and I'm convinced that He has, then we simply cannot allow them to be separated. Not even for a goal as noble and desirable as a closer fellowship with others that seek to honor Jesus as their Lord. Over in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, a passage that I want to share with you, a passage that I find to be one of the most terrifying and tragic passages in the New Testament. In verse 21 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? And in Thy name have cast out devils? And in Thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Those aren't Tim's words, beloved. That's what Jesus said. They were spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. Very early in Jesus' ministry. And quite honestly, those words make the hair on my neck stand up. Because with those words, Jesus makes it clear that sometimes people can be mistaken. They can believe they're saved and in reality be lost. Honest people. Good people. Sincere people. People who genuinely believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
people who are even zealously active in serving Jesus. I'll be honest with you. That's scary. But in my humble opinion, and God knows my opinions are humble. They are. Those words, those words ought to be enough to make folks want to revisit their salvation. Now stay with me. Don't introduce yourself to Miss Bear. Stay with me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Please don't tune me out. I am in no way saying we should be walking around every day with this huge question mark dogging us about our salvation. But what Jesus says right there means that our salvation should not be taken for granted. Why did Jesus say many? That's Jesus' word, not mine. Many who acknowledge and serve Him as Lord in this life would be lost on the day of judgment. In a word, the reason is disobedience. In the words of Jesus, listen to Him. Because they failed to do the will of my Father in heaven. That's the reason. And Jesus follows up that attention-grabbing announcement with an exhortation. Something that tells us we ought to take the idea of obedience to God very seriously. He says, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be like a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You remember we used to sing about that? You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You, know, you remember that? You don't want me to sing the whole song, do you? But that's what we were singing about. This passage right here in Matthew chapter 7. And then Jesus brings his lessons to a close. And Matthew tells us the reaction of the people. In verse 28, when he finished these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For He taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. One of the things we learn from studying God's Word is that God expects obedience. An example of that is when the Israelites invaded the Promised Land. God gave them specific instructions for how to take the city of Jericho. You remember that? He told them, you'll march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you'll march around the city seven times. The 
priests will blow the trumpet, you'll all shout. And the walls will come tumbling down. They did it and that's what happened. They followed God's instructions. What if on that seventh day they had only marched around the city five times? Walls of Jericho would have kept standing. Why? Because they did not do what God told them to do. There's a story told in 2 Kings chapter 5 about a military man by the name of Naaman. He was covered in leprosy. He was told by God's man to go dip seven times in the river Jordan and he would cleanse his leprosy. Do you know what Naaman's skin looked like after the sixth time? He still had leprosy. But the seventh time, his leprosy was cleansed because he obeyed God. And there are example after example after example of God demanding obedience. But the clear implication in the capturing of Jericho or Naaman being cleansed of his leprosy is that in those instances and in every other instance, folks had to meet the conditions God attached to His promises. God has promised to save my soul. And God has promised to save my soul with the blood of Jesus. But it's a promise that comes with conditions attached. And one of those conditions is baptism. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the washing away of your sins. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. God has attached that. And neither I nor any other man on the top side of God's green earth today has the authority to wave that condition. We must submit our will to the will of Jesus Christ. We must make Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master of all of our lives. Not just part of our life, but all of our life. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know what needs there are. If there are things you need to do to make Jesus the Lord and Master of your life, or if there are other issues in your life that we can help you with, if there's something you need that we can offer to you, this is your opportunity to come and let that be made known as together we stand and while we sing.